Menu Feed, a bi-weekly podcast from Winsight Media's two food service brands, Restaurant Business and Food Service Director. I'm Pat Kobe, Senior Editor covering Menu Food and Drink for both brands. Today I'm chatting with Thomas Mizuno Moore, Senior Beverage Manager at Let Us Entertain You, overseeing the restaurants Abba, Antico Posto, Beatrix, Ema, and L. Woods. Each concept has a unique beverage program that complements its cuisine and vibe with a wide selection of culinary-inspired drinks, both with and without alcohol. Mizuno Moore and his team invest the same R&D into zero-alcohol cocktails as they do with traditional drinks, providing guests with the same celebratory experience, whether they choose to indulge or abstain. Listen as he describes how to craft well-balanced, flavorful, and complex drinks with or without spirits, the importance of seasonality in a beverage menu, and the evolution of the drinks programs he oversees at Let Us Entertain You. Welcome, Thomas. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So let's start by talking about some of the top cocktail trends you see continuing into 2022. Sure. Yeah, I think what we've seen in our restaurants is that people are really excited to be back out at restaurants again. And so I think just sort of that focus on delivering really special in-person experiences and I know that's that's a focus for us, certainly, that we're focused on at, at finding really, really special ways to to safely serve our guests again. As far as trends, it's sort of, I think people are, there's such a wide range of preferences for the way people drink right now that I think the trends are kind of like anything's fair game, it feels like at this point. People are into all sorts of things and and there's just so much available information for cool ways to do things that um, it, it seems to me that kind of there's space for for anyone's sort of passion, I guess, if that makes sense. Oh, definitely. So do you see the trend toward non-alcoholic drinks gaining steam? Because that seemed to be, you know, gaining ground as we move into the end of the year. Yeah, I think so. I think that, I guess, kind of sort of unintentionally stumbling into that. I, uh, <laughs> I think that that's sort of like people are approaching the way that they drink from a lot of different perspectives. And I don't, I don't see that slowing down at all. I think people are, are realizing that there's a lot of different ways to engage with uh, cocktails. Um, we have in, in all of our concepts, we have some number of what we call zero proof cocktails. And it's been a, it's a, been a focus for us just to be able to offer those types of things for people. And I think also philosophically, right? Like one of the things we found is that people people are coming to our restaurants oftentimes because they're celebrating something mm-hmm. and, and it feels um, wrong <laughs> to exclude people from that celebration. It, fe- it felt wrong to me just from like a hospitality standpoint to, to say, okay, those of you who are having cocktails, you're going to have things that are beautiful and really carefully thought out and with really incredible ingredients and all this work has gone into producing them. But if you're not for whatever reason, you might not be indulging in alcohol for that event, that then you're left with, you know, soft drinks or tea or, or, or things like that. I just didn't feel, it didn't feel like it was the right message mm-hmm. to say that, that somehow those people were excluded from celebration. And so that was sort of where we started really trying to think of ways to have them be just as thoughtful. And in some ways, the R&D that we do for those is the, the same as the R&D that we do for, in air quotes, a regular cocktail, right? Like it's, we think about them the same way and with sort of the same attention to detail because those people deserve a drink that is just as thoughtful. 
For sure. And you're not calling them mocktails at your establishment. <laughs> We're not. No, the word mock, I think, implies, right, that they're somehow not serious. And that's not the approach we've taken. So how can a bartender or chef craft a zero alcohol drink to make it as complex and well-balanced as a regular cocktail? Yeah, I think that's been obviously a barrier, right? A lot of times you'll see mocktails or zero proof or whatever, those types of things. You'll see, you'll see them tending to be a lot of juices mixed together and then like maybe some soda or something. And, and they all kind of look the same way. They're either all fruity or overly sweet or those types of things. But I, I, don't, know that it, I don't know that it being zero proof is intrinsically a detriment to your ability to balance flavors. I think you just have to approach the R&D the same way. Look for culinarily inspired flavors and ingredients. And we draw influence from our chefs all the time. Um, and finding things to incorporate that are, uh, you know, the, the same sort of rules apply in, in trying to do work on a zero-proof cocktail. You still have to balance acid and sugar you still have to find a way to um, introduce, like what you said, complexity. I actually think complexity in some ways is easier in those types of things because you're not limited by spirit categories, mm-hmm. right? You can kind of draw ingredients from wherever you would like. And really the thing that's hard is trying to find ways to um, recreate in the aggregate the things that the spirit would do by itself, Right. And so, but finding ways to do that is just about kind of allowing yourself to not be boxed in by category thinking. And just, if you like this flavor, then use it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Are you playing around with any of the alcohol-free spirits? I noticed that there are a lot more on the market now and they must hopefully be improving in flavor and balance too. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there've been great strides made in sort of trying to approximate those, those spirit categories there's still, I think, challenges there. They don't fully recreate the experience of the spirit. I mean, even setting aside the obvious fact that they don't have the same sort of <laughs> uninhibiting effect mm-hmm. of spirits, uh, but that they, it's really difficult to recreate. One of the things alcohol does for cocktails is adds like body. And it's really difficult to find ways to add body that, that are not simply adding sugar. And so that's a thing that, that hasn't been really well recreated, I don't think. Um, and then still, I think you, you find that those spirit free or those alcohol free spirits are really good in certain types of cocktails, but they might not have sort of universal application. And so trying to find ways to recognize the strengths of what those are um, and not try to use them in cocktails that just simply can't support that style of ingredient. Mm-hmm. So do you try and recreate like a Negroni or a margarita or any like classic cocktails? using the alcohol-free spirits? Yeah. I, um, in fact, the, the, the sort of sour style, things like margaritas or whiskey sours, things like that are actually really good templates for those because you're balancing that spirit with some things that are a little bit more um, in the sort of original classic version that they are more a part of the flavor. Uh, I would say it's hard right now to do something like a Negroni. St- stirred spirits, things that are spirit-forward by design, to try to recreate them without spirit is a challenge. There are, there are bars that do, that do do it. Not, none that are in my division. There are bars that, that have figured out ways to do that, but it is very challenging, I would say. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, low-proof cocktails are also a trend. And is that continuing? And are you doing a lot of those at your establishments? Absolutely. Um, I think 
that we've sort of always had the sort of mindset that those cocktails have a place on our programs, even even without necessarily specifically thinking about them as being low ABV or, you know, but but having options for people that are more sessionable and less boozy, so to speak. Um, but those are things people are looking for, generally speaking, that's just a, a, a type preference or like a flavor preference. And so you'll see in a lot of our programs, we sort of split the base spirit with a lot of, we use vermouths a lot of the time, or we'll use uh, Amaro, or we'll use, we find other ways of adding sort of complex flavors, but without adding a lot of extra alcohol. And it creates cocktails that you can have, you know, several of them over the course of the night and not, and not be completely sort of incapacitated. It's sort of been a, from a personal health standpoint, <laughs> more sustainable way to, to approach those menus. We use them sort of all the time without it being sort of like a specific, specifically being drawn attention to or something on the menu. Right. Are you using fermented spirits? Because I heard those can be lower in alcohol. And I don't know exactly what they are, but I've read about other bars using them. Um, I'm trying to think what that would, I mean, using like ingredients that are coming from fermented sources, I guess you mean? So I'm trying to think what that would even look like. That would be anything kind of in the like hard seltzer category is like fermented. We use, we've used like wine, for example, as a base in a cocktail. I mean, the most famous example of that would be like sangria or something. Right. But, um, but using wine as a base because it has the same sort of effect, right? Wine has alcohol and it has acid. There's acidity. And so you're, you're sort of checking a couple of the boxes that you would be using anyway to, to create a cocktail. And then balancing around that is simply a matter of understanding balance and, and not that it's somehow lacking something by not using those. What are some of the more popular uh, lower proof cocktails that you serve? I know Aperol spritzes were really big during the summer and I For sure. really like them myself. So I ordered them. Yeah. When I was in um, Croatia over the summer, I had a lavender spritz, which was really interesting and a little different. Yeah. The spritz category is kind of a, a stalwart on almost any menu, right? We have things that are like that on, I think essentially all of our brunch menus, one of our concepts, Beatrix, uh, is known for their mimosas, right? That's a lower ABV mix. I mean, that's that's even lower ABV than a straight glass of Prosecco, right? It's incorporating, um, we make fresh juices there every day. And that's, that would be like what we would consider our zero proof program for Beatrix. And incorporating those juices into mimosas is a huge part of it. And then at some of our restaurants, places like Abba or Ima, there are spritz sort of style cocktails. We use rosé wine as a, I mean, base spirit is a misnomer, but we use it as the base ingredient in a cocktail that's kind of like a Collins at Ima. And then at Abba, we have um, like a super grapefruity sort of spritz thing that uses Prosecco. So we, we find ways to, I think, create cocktails that are wine-based and that helps us, you know, design cocktails that are for that sort of earlier in the day palette, what that palette is looking for. Mm-hmm. And do you balance the flavors of these lower proof drinks kind of like you would with a zero proof drink? Yeah, I, I would say absolutely. I mean, the same way that we would really any cocktail The the only thing that's difficult to recreate, like I said, is that sort of like the the weight and the sensation of alcohol, but from a flavor standpoint, the way that we approach those is, is the same sort of balancing act and the same sort of research and development that goes into them. So what are the components you have to balance? 
I know that, you know, there's always the sour element and, but I'm not, I'm not a bartender. So. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would say the vast majority of, of our concepts, they focus on, they focus on lighter sort of styles of food. And so we tend to have our, our, uh, cocktail programs aimed at that much more refreshing, um, you know, citrus driven styles of cocktail, things that are like in the sour family. Uh, and in that situation, you're balancing sugar and acid, you're balancing proof, I mean, but depending on where you're aiming, right, that could be different. If I'm looking for, you know, a, like a traditional whiskey sour, there's two full ounces of foolproof spirit in that. And so alcohol is very much a part of the way that 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 drink is perceived by, by the person drinking it. Um, but with a different component or a lower alcohol component, you can still balance around those ingredients. It just might involve, you know, tweaking the citrus component up or down a little bit, or the sugar component up or down a little bit. And then obviously adding, if there's any types of modifications you want to do to those things, like rather than just doing like a, a regular simple syrup, then introducing a different type of sweetening modifier, liqueurs or amari or, or even just simply just adding ingredients to the syrup itself and creating your own custom in-house syrups. There's, there's, I mean, as many, as many ingredients as you can think of, there are ways to incorporate those things. Right. So that's how we would approach like a refreshing style cocktail. And then when it comes to more spirit driven cocktails, we're looking for a balance of alcohol, a balance of still sugar, typically in bitter, you're usually balancing bitter and sugar and spirit. And then, for those cocktails in particular, how sort of dialed in your dilution is, is very important. The drinks don't really come into balance until you have raised the water content in the cocktail to the exact right moment where those flavors become sort of more married and in balance. Mm, interesting. So the ice plays a big part in it too. Absolutely. Yeah. Ice is an ingredient. I've said this to bartenders when we trained them, ice is an ingredient in every single drink that we make unless it's a hot cocktail, right? But ice is, and most of the cocktails we make, ice is an ingredient. And it's oftentimes not really thought of that way. You, you, when you read a recipe, you think, oh, I add all these ingredients. And then at the very end, I dump some ice in it. But ice adds water content. It adds to the cocktail itself. So if you put bad ice into a really good cocktail, you've made a bad cocktail. There's no getting around that. Interesting. I'll have to watch my ice from now on, for sure. It's a huge part of it. Yeah. And since you oversee several um, Let Us Entertain You concepts, do you try and pair the cocktails to the type of cuisine or vibe at the restaurant? You mentioned that a little bit, but is there like a Mediterranean spin to ABBA and Ema's drinks? Absolutely. Yeah. I would, in fact, I would, I would say I'm fairly explicit about that when I talk to bartenders that, that our cocktail programs should feel like they're an extension of the cuisine. There, it, it's just, it feels very, discombobulated to me if I go into a restaurant where the food and the drink aren't sort of in conversation with one another, if they feel like two different people with different ideas about what the restaurant is worked on them, it just makes the experience feel discordant, right? And so when we look at how we're going to introduce ingredient choices or the types of flavors we want to work with, we draw very heavily on, on the things that our chefs are using. Uh, at ABBA in particular, I think because our cuisine is so specific, right? It's, it's California influenced Mediterranean. And those are very distinct and specific regions that we can draw inspiration from. Mm -hmm. So ABBA and Ima are in some ways really 
fun and straightforward from an R&D standpoint, because I can go to specific regional influences and, and draw inspiration from those. And, and for Beatrix, um, that menu is a little bit more sort of globally influenced, but that just means that you look for inspiration can come from anywhere and you try to figure out what that guest, what type of al- alcoholic sort of ingredients or what type of flavors that guest is looking for and finding ways to still make it feel like I said, none of our food is particularly heavy. And so trying to find ways to have it match in style, if not necessarily in direct inspiration, um, where the food is coming from. Do you use a lot of herbs then that are similar to the herbs used in the cuisine? Absolutely. I mean, especially at ABBA, like herbs are such a huge part of Mediterranean cuisine. There's, there's always a little sort of garden on our bar tops filled with, not a little, it's not growing, but like, it looks just like this overwhelming amount of herbs. We use herbs in most cocktails, I would say. It's a huge part of it. And they smell great. <laughs> so why wouldn't we? No, I love herbs and drinks. I think they really yeah. you know, add a layer of flavor that you really can't get from anything else. So are there any trends among drinkers in different age groups? I mean, I've heard this term used a lot of, of, you know, among younger drinkers, sober curious. And they really are curious about trying different flavor profiles, but they don't want to drink too much. So is that something that you're seeing from younger drinkers or, you know, baby boomers or what age groups like what types of drinks? I think, yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I, there are people who I'm sure are much more informed than me about the actual statistics of this, but I can, I can speak anecdotally, which is that my experience isn't necessarily that they're tied to particular demographics or particular ages. I think, I think that people, the way people choose whether or not to engage with low alcohol or zero proof drinks has more to do with how open they are to trying something new, something that isn't sort of an obvious choice on the menu and less to do with some sort of demographic thing, at least in my experience, right? One of the things that we've seen is that it's, I think the challenge to making that more accessible to people is that you're operating in a space that that value has been historically defined as like how strong the drink is and finding ways to communicate value in other ways. How, how do you communicate to somebody that they're, this might not be, you know, a drink that will get you drunk if that's the target, but that there are other really, really thoughtful ingredient choices, or there's other work that's gone into it to make it really special and, and finding ways to make sure that that's being communicated, at least to the people that aren't already open to it. But I think the people that are already interested, I mean, we have people who are on our teams that don't drink alcohol. And I have conversations with them all the time about how much they wish there were other options for them when they go out, that they go somewhere and they ask for something. And, you know, the bartender looks at them like they've grown antlers or something like they don't understand, they don't understand why somebody would be in a bar asking for that. And it's like, well, because they're, they still want to be part of the celebration and they still want to be part of the socialization, but they don't want a cocktail. And, and that sort of goes back to what I said earlier that I just think philosophically we should be able to offer those things and they should be thoughtful. Mm -hmm. So the guest is there that wants it. I think it's just for a really long time. We haven't done a great job of finding things to offer them. Right. Well, I think it's even more prevalent now after the pandemic, because I think people are trying to, you know, make more healthful choices some of the time anyway. Sure. 
that's probably good. I mean, all things in moderation, right? That's probably good advice. Generally speaking, have a cocktail if you want one, have a zero proof if you want one. And in fact, that's something that like, these aren't, these are not the way that our menus are currently structured, but I've, I've toyed with the idea of a menu that doesn't necessarily distinguish between them. They would be denoted whether or not it had alcohol in it, but they would be on the same menu. And there wouldn't be this sort of othering of zero proof. It just is all, they're all cocktails. Some of them happen to have alcohol. Some of them happened to not have alcohol and finding a way to sort of bridge that gaps that we start thinking about them differently. And that anybody ordering those drinks doesn't feel that they are somehow ordering, you know, off the quote unquote kids menu. Right. Well, you know, to me, it's almost like if you eat meat, but you feel like having a vegetarian meal because you just feel like having it that night. It's the same kind of idea. Sometimes you want a, you know, an alcoholic cocktail that has a lot of punch, and sometimes you just want one that is, um, you know, tastes good but doesn't have the alcohol in it. I completely agree with that. That's a perfect analogy. Sometimes you just, like, what is wrong with having a diversity of options? Right. I, you know, make them all available and let the guests decide what they, what what is right for them for that meal. Yeah, for sure. Uh, now, I remember that um, Let Us Entertain You had a lot of cocktail kits that they were offering during the pandemic. Are you still doing that? And what are you know the components of a good cocktail kit if somebody wants something to do at home? Sure, yeah. So our the, the restaurants that I specifically oversee are not doing cocktail kits anymore. We've, we've sort of changed our focus to being very much about um, enhancing the in-person experience. But I know one of our other divisions, the other division that, that houses three dots and a dash, that is still, they are still doing cocktail kits under what they, what they're, it's called their gin and juice mm-hmm. sort of like sub concept. Um, and those things are, you know, you want to, I think the, the important thing to remember when you're doing them, and certainly when I was trying to think about how to put those things together, you don't want to have a, a kit that has a lot of complicated ingredients that makes it really difficult to recreate at home. You want to try to keep them sort of, it's a fine line to walk between having it simply just be a pre-made cocktail in a bottle and having it be, you know, super complicated, a lot of things to add and a lot of technique to understand, trying to strike that balance between those things so that when you're doing it at home, it really does feel like an activity that you're doing, that you're actually learning how to make that drink, but without having to, you know, and a lot of our, I think, I, like I said earlier, we use, you know, custom syrups. Well, if I gave you all of the raw ingredients for a custom syrup and then said, now turn on your stove and simmer the spices and it becomes a thing that's, you know, when you want the cocktail, you want it then, right. not after the thing has been, you know, steeping for an hour or whatever. So just trying to recognize like where you should bring the guest into the cocktail building experience and where you should do some of that probably yourself before they buy it. And trying to find that that sort of sweet spot. Were they very popular during this pandemic, the ones that you were doing from the concept you oversee? Yeah, I mean, it, I think and certainly we did a lot of sort of virtual happy hours, like virtual mixology classes. And those types of kits were super, super popular. And those were things where we would have people, you know, they would add me to their business Zoom and I would walk them through how to make it. And we would chat and I would tell them the history of the spirit or the cocktail or you know, and without, like I said earlier, without, you know, giving them too many sort of deconstructed ingredients, trying to make sure that it was still something we could get through in a normal, you know, hour, hour and a half happy hour. 
right. um, so that it didn't, it wasn't sort of off-putting as an experience. But we did that a lot. We had one group, I think that that did that with us four or five times over the course of the year. Just really, just, they really enjoyed sending those packages to their team. And, and, you know, everybody was looking for things to do for a while there. So um, it was replacing what would have been the, the in-person networking event with a virtual networking event. And we just sort of sweetened the experience, our, our contribution to those. Mm. Are you doing any special drinks for the holidays now that we're um, you know, approaching that season and actually almost in the middle of it? So, Yeah, actually, right before we started talking, uh, I went to one of our Beatrix locations and did a tasting for some hot cocktails. Those are obviously really important for the stores that we have there in Chicago, for sure, as we get into January and February. Um, we design our menus seasonally anyway. So we have a lot of sort of seasonal ingredient choices, you know, spices and apples and things that make sense for the, for the, for where we are just sort of as far as what's available as seasonal produce. Um, and that's the way that we sort of design our menus just generally speaking. Mm-hmm. So you can expect things like that more sort of warm and comforting flavors as we head into fall and winter. And then those sort of much more bright, you know, refreshing citrusy, Herbs become a lot easier once you get to the spring. Like we, we think about those things a lot. I think hot cocktails though is probably like the most directly seasonal right thing that you would do. Cause we still sell sort of traditional shaken or like cold cocktails year round, but that hot cocktail thing, especially in our colder uh, markets, um, we saw, especially last year, I would say last winter when so much of the business was sort of by definition outdoors Mm-hmm. Um, we, people really enjoyed getting a hot toddy or, you know, a, a boozy hot chocolate or things that were just like very comforting and, and sort of staved off the cold a little bit. <laughs> right. Are there any secrets to like crafting a hot cocktail that are different than when you do a icy cocktail? So you're not, I would say, generally speaking, you have to be, because you're typically adding hot water of some kind, or you're, you're diluting with things that are um, going to stretch out, going to stretch the ingredients out over a larger volume. So you usually have to adjust with a little bit more sugar and making sure that all the ingredients are warm to begin with is a huge part of it. Like if you put, you know, even, I mean, room temperature right now, right? If you're in Chicago, room temperature is probably still fairly chilly (laughs) at this point. So if you're putting room temperature spirit into a hot drink and then putting hot water on top of it well you know that hot water is now having to offset the colder temperature of the spirit so what we usually recommend is um using almost like a ben marie style Mm -hmm. like thing where you you put some you put like a tin in hot water and you sort of pre-warm the spirit so that everything is raised to a to a more pleasant drinking temperature nobody wants lukewarm Irish coffee or something, right? That's not very pleasant. So finding ways to get everything hot uh, so you're able to give sort of a consistent temperature experience. Do you have a signature hot, co- hot cocktail at each of the different concepts or, is, or are they you know, pretty much similar across the board? It changes, I mean, based on the menu cycle. So I can say that what we're looking at this year for Beatrix is we have like a uh, sort of a hot chocolate peppermint thing that we're working on. We have an Earl Grey hot toddy and um, a mulled wine were the three that we tasted to that we really liked. 
Uh, last year at ABBA, we did a hot buttered rum. Mm-hmm. At Emo, we did something called Amaro Caldo. So essentially building a hot toddy with Amaro as the base. And those are fun because I think that one in particular, right? You have a lot of flexibility. You can pick whatever Amaro you'd like and you can turn it into this really delicious, complex hot cocktail. So uh, trying to find things like we talked about earlier, finding choices that make sense for the cuisine and the restaurant that they're for. And different restaurants have sort of different needs. So now that we're approaching the end of the year, what are you most looking forward to personally and professionally in 2022? I think personally, I'm looking forward to spending time with my partner and our pets and our families. I think in particular, like her family lives out of state. So getting able, being able to see them more often is going to be great. Mm. Um, and I'm a homebody typically. I really enjoy being at home with, with her. And so that's something I'm hoping to do more of. Um, that of course will be unfortunately or fortunately offset by the professional thing, which is that we have several restaurant openings coming in 2022. Another Beatrix location has been announced for Chicago. And then next summer, we're opening another ABBA location in Miami. So that's going to be, I mean, I'm going to be involved in both of those openings. And and certainly for the Miami one, I'll be out of town for a while. So that's obviously very exciting. There's there's nothing really quite like the energy of a new restaurant opening. Mm. Um, and so those are always really sort of special things to be involved with. You know, maybe I'll see if my... My partner wants to come back to Miami for a little while. <laughs> I'm sure she wouldn't. She wouldn't be opposed. <laughs> Will you be doing different kinds of drinks in Miami because it's a you know more tropical city? Yeah, definitely. We, I mean, so if you compare, for example, we have an ABBA here in Chicago and another one in Austin, and those menus are there's a lot of overlap, but we do choose things that are sort of tied to the place that they're from. We use a lot of local Austin ingredients for the menu in Austin. And we do the same thing in Chicago. And so the same will be true for Miami. You know, there will be a few menu items that are the ones that we're really well known for that will definitely come down there. But it'll be, you know, trying to create a menu experience that is appropriate for that space and that place and those guests. And we really try to be attached to the communities that we're in. I don't want it to feel corporate. It should feel connected to the place that it is. Thanks so much for sharing all those creative ideas, Thomas. Please join us for another episode of Menu Feed as we explore more food and drink trends. The podcasts are now available to download on Spotify, Apple, and wherever you get your podcasts. (music) 